rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Hello, welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. And uh, as you can see, I'm doing another Zoom cast here. It seems to be the rage of all the kids have been doing lately. So it's a lot of fun. I've got Matthew Stefano with me today. He's a best-selling author. He's a blogger. He's a podcaster. He's a social worker. And he's a hip-hop artist. You can find all his work at allsetfree.com. I know he's a writer for Patheos. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. Okay. Yeah. I'll say, I'll, I'll say used to be a writer for Patheos. Oh, okay. No longer there, huh? We'll, no. we'll get into that, huh? <laughs> if you want. <laughs> What's, uh, well, how's your family doing in the midst of uh, all this pandemic stuff? Oh, fine. My, my wife's an RN, so we weren't, she wasn't sure how it was going to be. She's in, she does procedures, so she's in the GI lab. So a lot of, a lot of times it's sort of elective, sort of non-emergent. So they were slow for a little bit, but it's picked back up. And like where I'm at in Butte County, we've only had like 16 cases. So it's been really chill hmm. as far as that goes. Homeschooling has been interesting. I'm not really working much and my daughter's not able to dance. She's a competitive dancer. So they've been doing virtual dance competitions. How's yeah. that been going? Well, it's just uh, they had uh, some dances recorded so they're just submitting videos and watching it so i mean you know life's different but it's not been it's not been terrible i mean it you know it's been fine yeah yeah so do you just have the one child one daughter yeah just one okay. just all one. right so what's what's what does the streets look like in california where you are <sighs> i mean a little bit lighter but I mean, I just saw those pictures down in the beaches down in Huntington and Newport and Southern California, and people were packed. It's not it's not been like that. Like our Costco is packed a lot. Places like that. Grocery stores can be packed at certain times, but the streets are pretty, I mean, there's traffic and stuff. There's things going on, but we, we have a lot of essential services where I'm at. So it's not in too much different. Mm. I mean, it's not like what you see in, in like Milan and Northern Italy at first when they first had everything shut down. It's not really been like that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how it is where you're at in, in Tennessee, but. Well, believe it or not, they just opened back up today where we are. And I, I was out and about in my neighborhood and people are at restaurants and hanging out together and it felt really weird, to be honest with you, which <laughs> normal is weird. And I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, you know, we were one of the first states to open up, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. I guess we'll see. Yeah, depending. I don't know when your release schedule is like, but well, I guess we'll see in like two weeks if that was a bad decision. Yeah, no, I, I released pretty quickly. So okay, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about. I, I've listened to your podcast. I've listened to you know the bonfire sessions a little bit. I've listened to Heretic Happy Hour. I've had Jamal. I've had Greg on. I'm I'm sorry, Keith on the podcast and, but I don't know a lot about your history and your background. You're growing up. Can we talk a little bit about that? Where, where did you, where did you grow up, Matt? And what was, what was your early life like? I grew up, well, I grew up in San Jose and Santa Cruz area in Bay area and just South of the Bay area in California. Kind of moved back and forth. My, my parents divorced when I was like five. And so I lived with my grandparents for a little bit. 
my mom got remarried and separated and then got reback with my stepdad. So it was a little bit tumultuous in terms of that, but, but stable in the midst of that, I guess, to a degree, like my grandparents were great when we lived with them, both are now deceased, but yeah, they, they kind of like stabilized my childhood, if you will, in a way. But my, you know, my mom, my stepdad were great too. Sometimes, you know, relationships are rocky for a while, right? Like it takes a while to work out. Yeah. And then we moved uh, when I was like, oh gosh, 12, maybe we moved up to a tiny little town called Paradise, California. And the only reason you might know it is because it's the town that burned down like two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Paradise. Um, yeah. Yeah. So no one knew who that was or what that town was until a couple of years ago. And then I was like, oh, like, yeah, the most like north of Malibu, that area. Mm-mm. Well, yeah, I mean, technically, yeah, like eight hours north of Malibu. Yeah, okay, um, so yeah, way up there. Yeah, so we had like the same fires, you know, the same time there were fires going on in Southern California. We had ones in Northern. And uh, every year, I'm sure we're, it's in April now, so we got a couple months until <laughs> we have to start worrying about that again. But yeah, I moved up there as a tiny little town, got pretty involved with a, um, I don't know, evangelical church, if you want to call it that, like really non-denominational. I don't know if you're familiar with Christian Missionary Alliance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, was pretty, pretty much by the book in terms of like doctrine and all that kind of stuff, like inerrant Bible we had to believe in, and we believed in eternal torment and the rapture. And that really kind of like, I would say that would be like the catalyst and, and, and the depictions of a violent God because of the inerrant Bible that, that kind of sent me on this you know, my like late teens, early 20s, in spite of the fact that I was doing worship for all these different teams and all that, because I played a bunch of instruments, like it just sent me on this like spiral downwards. <laughs> now, did you have siblings? Do you have siblings growing up? Yeah, I had a stepbrother and, and uh, a brother, a younger brother. Now, were they all in church with you too? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, my stepbrother moved to Minnesota when I was like 12. Mm. But my my younger brother, yeah, he was involved in the church and went on some like short term mission trips and those kind of things. And I was just more the music guy, so I did a lot of the worship teams. And yeah, I mean, I just at, at a certain point, like I was asking all these kind of deep questions about my faith, about God, about what God's like, about my relationship with the Bible. And I I don't, I don't know if it was just for a lack of not getting satisfactory answers or what. Like I just. I couldn't hang any longer and I'm pretty outspoken. If, I mean, you've listened to the heretic happy hour. <laughs> um, if anyone knows who I, you know, what I do, they know I'm pretty outspoken. And so I ask really tough questions and I don't, I don't hold back. And that was, maybe I should have gone a little easy on people, but. Um, now how, old, now how old were you when you were starting to, you know, unravel and not, not doing well in that environment? I mean, it was like kind of like a, it was like a slow burn, you know, it was like 18, 19. I really started thinking philosophically and I got into like critical thinking and all that kind of stuff. And then it, and then it kind of was like a little bit up and down. I was really try to study. I'd really try to go to Bible studies because I could kind of feel the pressure like mounting, like, oh, if I just study more, maybe I'll come up with some good answers. It was about 25 where I just couldn't any longer. And so between like 25, 27, 28, like, on my worst days, I was probably an atheist. On my on my better days, I was like, whatever, I don't care. I was apathetic. And yeah, so that was that was tough. Anyone who's gone through anything like that, where they have a complete 180 in their worldview, they know how difficult. And I don't know if you have had that sort of thing where you yeah. go from like one worldview to starkly different 
to where you don't know anything anymore. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, it gets difficult, man. You have, you have difficult days, constant existential crisis. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So, so what did you do after that? Because your, your bio is pretty varied. You've got this social worker thing. You've got this writer, this theologian. What, what path did you take after that? While I was going through all that, I was working at different group homes. So foster care group homes, kids with, um, you know, either crimes against them or truancy. Mm-hmm. They get put into pretty high level group homes. So I managed some and I just worked at them for a while, for about seven years. I wasn't really doing like the writing thing. It wasn't until kind of I started, I don't know, to use this term loosely, like reconstructing different ideas that I got really vocal about how there's a different way to approach faith. There's a different way to approach spirituality. Excuse me. And that's when I started writing. That's when I started blogging for uh, just, you know, here and there once a month as a guest on different blogs while working still as a social worker. But then, you know, I, I wrote, I published my first book in 2015 with Whip and Stock called All Set Free. But you know, you can't replace a full-time income with, with one right. little book. Well, yeah. you know, you might sell a couple hundred copies or whatever. So, it, you know, you, you start, but you start to learn how to add five more percent, five, t- 10 more percent. You know, you start replacing your income, replacing your hours and, you know, doing the things you love. So I'm passionate about that. I like social work. I do all that still. Hmm. Um, but I'm really passionate about creating content and talking to people about these ideas, writing books, even doing music and all that kind of stuff. So. I'm kind of 50, 50 now, 50, 50 regular job and, and then writing and doing this. Yeah. So, so your first book, what was it called? All set free. Okay. And and, and how many books have you written all together? Well, I say six, one's a booklet. So my, my most recent endeavor is the bonfire sessions booklet. Mm. We're doing a four part booklet and we're putting them in the season. So this one's spring that I wrote with Mike Machuga so that's like a 50 page booklet when we're done it'll be four of them so it'll be about the length of a book and then i've got five others yeah very cool so your most recent like book book was heretic so talk to me let's talk about that i mean was it uh i know it's a lot of it's come out of your own journey and your own experience is that is that the genesis of it and is that kind of where it came from uh because you, you've been unpacking and talking about these things for a long time. I know I've followed your blogs. I know you used to write for Patheos up until recently. And there seems to be definitely a journey and an, and, and an unfolding of, of your life and your worldview. Is that, was, that, was that kind of some of the culminations of where you were at the time or are at the time? Yeah. I mean, I'm still kind of there. Like, I, I don't know if I'd, I'd have to read it again. <laughs> just, you know, sometimes you write so much, you kind of forget what you wrote. But no, it's, yeah, it's kind of, the genesis of it is essentially based on my time on social media and blogging for places like Pathios and the Raven Foundation, mainly, mainly social media though. And coming into contact with people who really, really disagree with you, but who ask pretty good questions. And, and, and the more you do it, the more you're on social media. I don't know how long I've been doing Facebook. See, before I did all this, I didn't even have a Facebook. I wasn't messing with that kind of stuff. But, you know, you realize you have to market and do all that. So when I got on the Facebook, that's when I started writing. You know, that's when I was writing. It was kind of together as one. And you, you start to see a pattern because you're talking to the same kind of people. Uh, a lot of evangelicals or ex-evangelicals or struggling evangelicals 
who ask questions when they hear like, oh, Matt's a universalist or Matt doesn't believe in penal substitution atonement theory or Matt doesn't believe the Bible is inerrant. So then you start to see a pattern of questioning, right? So, well, if, if you're a universalist and everyone's reconciled, why, why do we care about Jesus? What's, you know, if, if the cross wasn't about God pouring out his wrath, well, what, what's the point in all this? So I took 10 of those and answered them, kind of like 10 different essays, essentially. And it's, you know, it's, I try to balance the line between like just this conversation right. and, and something scholarly. So it's certainly not scholarly, but I certainly had a long time, many years of reading scholarly stuff above my pay grade and over my head. So to try to distill that to the person who's not going to read Douglas Campbell's 1200 book, 1200 page book or things like that. Yeah. Well, I had uh, William Paul Young on a few weeks back and he, we talked a lot about his book, Lies We Believe About God. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same kind of format, real kind of down to earth layman's terms, addressing each one of those issues. Yeah. And heretics very similar from what I've read. So that's I awesome. Probably, we've had, yeah, we've had, we've had young on the show. He didn't cuss. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get into some of the themes of your book, how did you get uh, connected with the guys from the heretic happy hour podcast? And my listeners, if you um, haven't tried it out or listened to it, I encourage you to listen to it. It's a lot of fun. You guys have had some really great guests on lately. You always do, but you've been ratcheting it up lately. So yeah, we've had an interesting run. You know what I mean? It, it, it's, it really kind of came out of nowhere. It was really organic. Keith, no, Jamal wrote a book called Free to Love. And he published with this tiny, tiny little publisher, Choir Publishing. And I don't even know how I came across Choir, but somehow I ran into him. It was probably through Jamal on Facebook or something. So I, I was like, oh, this upstart little company seems cool. The owner, Rafael Palendo, seems really cool. I published my first book with Whip and Stock. So, but then my second, I was like, I gave him a manuscript for From the Blood of Abel and went with them. And it was just like, something felt right about it. It was like, something felt like this is like, this is a cool thing to be a part of. Keith published a book with them as well at some point. And then we all just decided to do a one-off podcast on, on why penal substitutionary atonement theory is not great what it is why it's not great and and why you should reject it it turned into this this like three part three and a half hour you know joe rogan type just conversation that goes on forever and it was so much fun and we so we all we all did the three parts in our we all had blogs so jamal published one of the parts on his keith and myself the same and it was so much fun it was like why don't we just do this like why don't we just start a podcast and I, don't, I think that might have been either Keith or Jamal's idea. And then I came up with a name. I was like, what about Heretic Happy Hour? Like, it's an alliteration. You got to love alliterations. It flows nice. I was like, yeah, let's do this. So we all just kind of just started from scratch. Like, we've been on podcasts before. Uh, we knew what podcasts were. But it just kind of built and built and built. We didn't start with guests. And then we started like, oh, let's have guests. So we had Brad Jersack and we've had David Bentley Hart. and. Um, Nadia Bowles Weber and Richard Rohr. We've had so many great, like you mentioned, like it's just cool people, man, to talk to. Yeah, I love uh, it. I love yeah. it. What I appreciate about you guys is you're all so different. You all come totally. from kind of different backgrounds and the the respect and kindness and the civil discourse that you have. And 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 one thing I've noticed too is it's not just, hey, let's let's get together and be civil. 
But I, I love to see how your views shift and change and kind of like, well, you know, you'll be listening to somebody and you'll be going, well, that's, that's an interesting point. Maybe I need to shift my view on that, which I love seeing the evolution of people uh, in those type of conversations. Well, thanks. Yeah. That's kind of, I mean, it's kind of nice to hear that kind of feedback because that's kind of the goal of the, it, we're just trying to be vulnerable and real. And I, one of the best compliments I had was I like how Matt is agnostic about everything. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not trying to be like, I have my beliefs, but it's sometimes it's just like, maybe the point in all of this is just to do this. Yeah. Like, do I, if you and I disagree, for instance, on some, is there any point for me to like prove you wrong? Isn't, isn't the point just to have the conversation? Exactly. I mean, that's, the fun, that's the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. Jamal's going off on some quantum physics theory and, you know, you know, over here, you've got uh, Mr. Giles trying to hold to the conservative, you know, historical view. And then you're kind of in the middle sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of the wild card, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things you mentioned that you all three have in common was um, just really talking through and thinking through a different way of looking of the death of Christ and the, the, the I guess, a doctrine of penal substitution Talk to me a little bit about that. People who may be listening may not be super familiar with in that terms, but why why was that an issue for you? Why is it an issue to you three guys? And why is that such a pivotal point of really, you know, when you begin to unravel that, how everything else begins to unravel? Yeah, well, I can only speak my, for myself, but I, I kind of know where they'd come from. Although it's been a while since we actually talked about atonement theory, but it comes up from time to time. So I kind of have an idea where they'd both be at. It's for me, the biggest issue is what it says about God. And I know we can kind of skirt what I'm going to say, or we can use some mental gymnastics to kind of explain it away, but it depicts God as, as violent. And, and, and further, it, it says nothing new about this God. So for eons, gods have demanded sacrifice, demanded blood, often the firstborn, that's the greatest sacrifice you can give, virgins in the volcanoes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the only difference with penal substitution is God becomes that sacrifice to himself. I'm not sure how that works, but whatever. But it, but it essentially just kind of rehashes the same narrative and that the gods or God demands a, a body or some sort of sacrifice. And it's almost as if then, well, who's the real God? God can't freely forgive. Well, then God's bound by some sort of transactional, you know, thing like some quid pro quo. We hear that term a lot these days, or we did late last year. But but that's what it says about God. And and to me that that creates quite a problem. And, and I think the most pragmatic way to talk about the problem is that human beings essentially most of the time act like the gods they believe in and and if if we're going to have a god that is violent if we're going to have a god that demands something in return for forgiveness or whatever the case may be we're going to have one kind of world we're gonna have the world we see right now i mean we we all i mean it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a transaction but when you're talking about a transactional god or a god of pure forgiveness regardless of what you've done pure grace, that's an entirely different model. And, and I just see it, it like plays out all the time, kind of the same. I truly believe that what we believe about God 
directly is causative and correlated to how we treat each other. And if we believe God is violent or has any violence, there will be more violence in the world. Hmm. I, I, I can't deny that. And that's my, that's my biggest issue with it. I have issues with it historically. I have issues with it exegetically. But that's, that's the biggest one for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I came to deal with this myself a few years ago, actually, it's just been a couple of years. But what I was brought up and led to believe that was what there, there was no other interpretation. There was no other theological understanding. And there was no other way to interpret the death of Jesus. And yet, when your eyes are open to say, oh, there's many different atonement theories. That's just one. And there's... You know, there's at least three, four, five different ways of looking at that and saying, what exactly was the purpose of Jesus dying a brutal death on a cross and what did it accomplish or achieve? And that's just one interpretation. Yeah. And, and for the people who say it is the interpretation, the Eastern Orthodox would find that hilarious because they said, we've never believed this and we've been there from the start. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, this is really, truly a, uh, a, a pro- post-Protestant, Protestant sort of understanding. And there are many different ways. And I mean, once you see it, you kind of see it, right? Like right. if if you're, if you like any belief that we're given from the time we're young or the first thing we're given and we, we don't wrestle with these things from the start, of course, it's going to look weird. You're going to, you're going to have that question. Well, if the death of Jesus is not to satisfy the wrath or penal nature of God, well, what, what's, what's the point, right? I understand that, that propensity, but like you said, there is, there is many different ways to understand atonement theory. And first and foremost, no one atonement theory can explain exactly what the cross was. I mean, these are just pointers. They're pointers, right? And yeah. there's, probably, there's probably pros and cons to all of them. So if you say Christus Victor, Christ's victory over sin and death, great. Can, does that mean that moral influence, that, that Christ is our moral example, does that mean that's not true? Like we have to have one atonement theory and not the other? Right. Well, no, both can, have, both can have merit. Gerard's understanding of the, of the cross and this sort of scapegoating idea, this is how we, this is our human culture, this is what we do. We put people on crosses, we put people on altars. You know, that has merit as well. Is it the end-all, be-all explanatory of, you know, theory of the cross? No, none of them are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and why, why do you think it is that, that we hold on to that so deeply? I know it's ingrained and it's deeply into it. It's in our hymnology, our music, our, even our modern music, not, not saying anything about our old hymn music. It's in our Sunday school lessons. It's in the way that you explain quote salvation to children what what do you think the real danger is or do you in holding on to it you know you say well i feel differently but if you want to hold on to that that's fine you mentioned violence what else well i think i don't think we can understand the full impact or the full and maybe none of us can what what it means to love mm. and if I require anything out of my daughter in order to love her, I don't think I understand love. And, and, and that's how I see kind of, a, it's kind of an analogous, like if God cannot love us in spite of, even if we reject God, mm. then 
I'm not saying I don't understand that because I'm a human being. I totally understand that. Like uh, <laughs> I talk unconditional love, but maybe my love is more conditional than I would think. It hasn't been pushed to the brink like some, you know, I, I but I, I think if we, if we totally, if we can try to wrap our head around the fact that God's love is truly unconditional and grace is truly like God's posture towards us, regardless of what we do, even if we murder his son and reject the whole thing, that to me is so impactful. Mm. I, I still can't wrap my head around that. And, and I've really given up trying and just like accepted it. And see, that's where I think like people like James Allison, who would be talking like this, say that it's no, it's no longer about grasping. It's no longer about like, I got this. I got Jesus. I got atonement. I got my ticket to heaven. It's, it's like letting go of everything. And maybe this gets a little Buddhist, but, and then relaxing into the arms of God. You just end up like, I, I, I don't have to hold on to anything. I can literally just relax because that grace is so um, removed from anything I have to do. Now, the only thing I want to do is relax into it. Mm. So I think you're missing, I think you're missing out on that. If you talk about the cross in a transactional way. Yeah. Yeah. I think transactional for me, it was coming to the term, coming to the terms of that. When you let go of a transaction, then you let go of this judgment for not accepting the transaction. And when you let go of the judgment for not accepting the transaction, then you open up a whole new world of a shameless acceptance. And I think that shame can run very deep. I know it has for me and for others. When you see that, you know, things like Jesus would have died on the cross if you were the only one because your sins put him there. And so there had to be a shedding of blood to sacrifice. And, you know, you start start with that, teaching that as a child, it can, it can run pretty deep and it can have a, a great effect on people's psyche, on their self-worth. I think, I think it, I think it can impact a lot of things. What are your thoughts on that? No, I, I would a hundred percent agree. And I, and I, I think you're, you're, you nailed it. And then this, this shame becomes so a part of us that it's almost like so below the surface that we're not even aware of how, how deep it runs. It's like the roots of the tree. Like we don't know how far they go down. We, you know, we might try to, you know, there might be a tree we're trying to dig out the root and that, that tap root just goes down and down and down. And that's sort of like shame. I think we might think it's there. We might, we might assume it's there, but it's, it's so uh, subconscious or non-conscious that it's, it's tough to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yet you listen to, you know, people like you've had on your show, like Richard Rohr and, you know, a, a Franciscan theology, which, you know, in the, in the Catholic uh, tradition allows for differences of views and opinions and theologies on, and whereas I know many times in certain uh, evangelical and conservative circles, there would be no room for that at all. And I think that's, that's really beautiful to be able to, to have those spaces, to be able to say, you know, let's explore this and let's reason together and think about, you know, none of us were there. None of us don't know, you know, in those cultures going all the way back to the old Testament and in the new Testament bronze age type era things that were going on in the, in the middle East. I think these conversations are so important, but they're also, 
I think they're, they're part and parcel of the evolution of what's happening in, in faith, religion, culture. And I'd love to talk about that a little bit, because I know you talk a lot about different types of faith and different types of religion and how there's this unitive flow between them all. Can you talk a little bit about that? About like the, yeah, I, I, I truly believe that on the one hand, like Jesus, let's say, was very Jewish and yes. very in his context. However, I think when he talks about like the deeper truths of the universe and how he would see things, hmm. I think he's pointing in the same direction as someone like the Buddha or any of the enlightened mystics. Now, everyone speaks in their context. Everyone, you know, so Jesus is going to care about Torah. The Buddha is not going to care about Torah. He wouldn't. I mean, but maybe he would see the underlying nuggets of truth in Torah, just like Jesus would see the underlying nuggets of truth in the Bhagavad Gita or something like that. Hmm. So I think it's like both and we all are in our context. We all speak to that context. Jesus is going to talk about the law and the prophets a little more. Buddha is going to talk about what the Buddha is going to talk about in his context. But I think when it comes down to like the fundamental fabric of the universe, I think they're going to talk, they're going to point in the same direction. It might mm -hmm. not look exactly the same. Just like if I was pointing at the moon from San Francisco and you were in New York and pointing at the moon, there's different angles, you know, there's a different context, but we're all, we're all kind of pointing in the same direction. And this is why I think, like, oh, did Jesus travel to the East to go learn Buddhism? <laughs> now, I don't necessarily believe that at all. It's possible, I suppose. I just think, like, when you, when you're still, when you really try to ask these questions, when you try to meditate, when you do, I mean, not try, that kind of defeats the purpose, but <laughs> when you meditate, when you're contemplative, you're going to, we're all uh, kind of built in a, in such a way that I think we're going to discover what God is like, what love is like, what grace is like, all these kind of things. And we will get similar answers, which mm -hmm. I think why all the mystics kind of say similar things. Like, I don't see a lot of difference between Richard Rohr and Rumi. Hmm. One's Franciscan, one's Sufi Muslim. Hmm. But when you read them, it's like, well, this is like the same thing. They're saying the same thing almost, you know? Right. Uh, and I just think it's because, you know, I think it's the spirit. I think if you want to call it that, it's like it doesn't care about languages. You know, she doesn't care about faith traditions necessarily. There's like a universal language of you mm -hmm. want to call it love, you want to call it mercy, you want to call it grace, whatever. Bliss, consciousness, pure consciousness. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And why is it so difficult for us? Why do you think, Matt, that when you say things like that or I were to say things like that, it just makes people bristle, it freaks them out? You know, you, we are accused of, of being called a heretic, all these things. Why is it so difficult to just say, you know, maybe God's bigger than all of us and maybe he loves us all and maybe we can all see and interpret him through different lenses, but we're all talking about the same thing. Oh, gosh, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, on the one hand, we sh like it surprises me that we don't understand this because I mean, Paul says this in Ephesians, like God's love is bigger and wider and broader and higher and taller. Whatever we can say about God, God is better. Mm -hmm. God's goodness is bigger. God's mercy is greater. So we should get this, but we don't. And there's a, I think there's a couple of reasons why we don't. There's probably more than a couple. I think humans, first and foremost, have a propensity toward binary thinking. Mm 
Mm. If there is an us, which we all have to have an us, because we got to, we, we must have this. Otherwise, we go into pure existential crisis mode. <laughs> uh, we're deathly afraid of the afterlife, whatever. And if there's got to be a heaven, there's got to be a hell, right? If there's an in crowd, if there's the elect, there's got to be the non-elect. If there's vessels of mercy, well, there's got to be vessels of wrath, right? So we fall into this trap of binary dualistic thinking. And on, on the one hand, it's fine. If I'm traveling to someplace I haven't been and I, and I come to the end of a street, I have to make a right or a left. Well, I have to make a right or a left, right? right. <laughs> it's got to be one or the other. We take this far too far, obviously, right? So I think that's one thing. I think there's this wonderful anthropologist who passed away too young. His name was Ernest Becker. He wrote The Denial of Death. He talks about how we're so, we have like an irrational, hardcore anxiety about our own demise. And so we have to build up these hero systems and immortality systems in order to, to function in life. <laughs> we have to be a hero. We have to go on past our death, whether that's through our work, our philosophies, our afterlife, our heaven, whatever. The problem is other people come up with their own. And so we come in contact with those other things. and. We have an issue with that because that challenges our own system of immortality that ensures our own afterlife, right? Mm. So I, I always joke that most Muslims believe there's a hell and it's not for them. And most Christians believe there's a hell and it's not for them. So in both books, you're going to hell. Someone is, right? <laughs> so we get into that. And then, of course, you know, being a student of Rene Girard, uh, mimetic theory explains a lot in why we have to have a them. Our societies have to. We have to have a scapegoat. When we don't have a scapegoat, we spiral out of control. We all have to agree on something when we're going crazy with each other. And we typically can find one, mm. whether it's, and, and also, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons why people bristle at the idea that, well, with God, there is no scapegoat. Jesus came to end scapegoating. We don't have to worry about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. We like, it, it's like, it really, it really rubs us the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was listening to someone today and they were, they made a point. I don't think it was an original saying, but it's something that hit me hard. And I think this person said that there's been more pain and destruction and, and hurt done by people when they think what they're doing is an absolute virtue versus when people are controlled by their vices. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you really think about that, it's really true is, you know, when people think they're absolutely true and there's a certain, there's a certainty behind it and they believe that it's virtuous for them to believe this, that can really go down to some really nasty roads. Because like you said, if, if you are certain that you have the truth and everyone else is wrong, then eventually you will harm those people. I was listening to an interview with Megan, who she was, she was, her family was part of the Westboro Baptist. Oh yeah. Okay. Megan Phelps. Yeah. yeah. Megan Phelps who came out of that. Yeah. And she was talking about how, you know, they believe that their little cult of mainly family members had the ultimate absolute truth and they were God's people. And it got so bad that what they would do and, you know, they're infamous for this, but, you know, picket and yell and scream at 
people's funerals and just the horrendous pain that they would bring on people who were suffering and mourning in the name of God. I, I can't think of anything more harmful, but yet, you know, that's just an extreme example of, you know, this, this addiction to certainty. And I know Pete Enns has talked a lot about that and, sure. and other things, but, but it's real, it's real interesting that, that we're still in that space in 2020. Yeah. And, and it, you say that's an extreme example, but if you really think about it, like all of the people fighting a war believe they're on the right side. Right. I mean, Bob Dylan's got this great song with God on our side. Mm-hmm. Um, God is always on our side and we're always doing the right thing. Even the Nazi soldiers. I mean, yeah, I'm sure some of them are like, uh, uh, this is kind of messed up. But for the most part, like, you know, the good side of the bad side, it's very blurred. And, and we all think we're on the good side. We all think we're the rebels, not the stormtroopers, right? right. <laughs> and I, I do like this part. I forget which um, one of the new Star Wars movies it was in, where uh, someone was selling arms to both sides. And it was kind of like that aha moment. Like, it's not as clean cut as we like to think. Like, both sides, their hands are dirty. So we're, we're never, we could think we're doing the virtuous thing, but it's probably more complicated than that. And everyone thinks they're doing the virtuous thing. Yeah. What do you think is the, the answer for moving forward? Like, what, are, what is your personal mission? I mean, I know you guys are demonstrating that on the Heretic Happy Hour in one way. You're kind of nudging the conversation a little bit. But for you in your life, I mean, what, what have you found that's your own? Let's start personally, like your own like personal practice to stay out of that dualism. But also, like, you know, you seem to be active as a social worker and active in other causes. I'd love to hear more. Let's get it out of the theory and, you know, the, the theology and talk about the practical. What do you do? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked that question because... I do love philosophizing and talking and doing all that. But yeah, it comes down to, well, what the hell are you doing on Tuesday at three, right? Right. Like, (laughs) what are you doing when your daughter comes home from dance? Well, it just starts, it starts personally. Yeah, you're right. How do I raise my child? Am I going to spank? Am I going to not spank? No, I'm going to practice nonviolence. I'm going to let her be who she is. I'm going to offer guidance, but I'm not going to be punitive. If I believe God is theoretically reconciliatory, his his, his or her or God's justice is not retributive and not punitive. Okay, let's practice that out in real time. So let's be reconciliatory. Let's mm. not let's not take her stuff when she does things that I don't like. Right? Let's mm. let's talk about this. Let's come up with creative solutions. Mm. Let's have the point B to reconcile, and let's be nonviolent when we do that. So it starts with that. It starts with how do I treat my wife? How do I you know? How do I the big part about like mimetic theory and how I apply it is how do I not gossip? Mm. That's a big one and it's subtle and it works because <laughs> I catch myself doing it. So not gossiping. How am I going to help out my community? Mm. How am I going to, we can talk about ideas and yeah, the heretic happy hour reaches, I guess most countries. I think we have mm. listeners in almost every country that listens to podcasts, but I think the big impact, the biggest impact is how we can, help my street, my street corner, you know, my, my neighbors across the street, you know, um, I'm picking up a lot of trash cause I have a lot of time on my hands. I picked up hundreds of bags of trash or hundreds of pounds of trash. 
like global warming is a thing, climate change is a thing, whatever, like our planet, we're supposed to caretake, we're supposed to take care of it. So I'm going to take that seriously. I'm Mm -hmm. going like, we, we cannot, we cannot continue to be a bacterial infection to the earth. Right. I mean, bacteria is good. We could be good, but we're an infection and it's obvious. Just drive down your highways. It's disgusting. You know, when this COVID thing came out, older people or people with underlying cause diseases were not supposed to go out hardly at all. So I offered, Hey, to my neighbors who are elderly, if you need me to go to the grocery store, just like, tell me what you need. Pay me afterwards. I got you. Yeah. Little stuff. We think little stuff like that, but that's the real stuff. Yeah. You know, just every, everyday stuff that we can do for each other. Yeah. We got to We got to do it. Yeah. And then we could come home at five and have gin and tonic and talk, talk on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. So talk about the bonfire sessions. What are you, what are you doing with that? And uh, how can people like plug into that? But what, what's your motivation there? Well, thank you for asking that because everyone talks about Heritage Happy Hour, but I love the bonfire <laughs> sessions because the bonfire sessions has been going since 2014. It became a podcast less than a year ago. Right. Um, it's literally like me and Mike talking. And when, when, when we both like deconstructed and started reading, you know, reconstructing, if you want to use those terms, everyone seems to use the buzzwords these days. Did I freeze? Are you still, you still got me? Still gotcha. Okay. Well, my camera froze, but oh, there it is. The bonfire sessions was, was basically us sitting around a bonfire and talking through all the stuff we were going through, all the ideas we were coming up with. And so then we wrote a book that Whippenstock published. And then two years later, I was like, dude, because Mike's really introverted. I'm introverted too. And I was like, we got to do a podcast, man. <laughs> so I talked him into it. We started a podcast. It's literally just having a conversation. We, we sit here with no notes. I, I, we put up one topic we might talk about and we hit record for an hour, hour and a half and, and talk. Hmm. And the goal of it is to say, what would it be like to really talk with each other with no, no suppositions, no proselytizing. I have no interest to talk Mike out of his Buddhism. He has no interest to talk me out of whatever the hell I believe. It's just like, this is how true friendships should be. Mm-hmm. Like there's, yeah. you know, there is, so we, we've, we're trying to brand it right now. Like we did the, we're doing the podcast kind of put a kibosh on that because we're trying to stay at home and do all that so we can't literally sit at the same table and talk i guess we could but we're trying to be good so we have we're turning the the podcast has also become a series of books mm-hmm. so the the bonfire session spring booklet is as close to a transcript as you can get while still being readable mm. if it makes sense sure. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, we're blown away for like two weeks. We're the number one new release on Amazon in theology, which is a pretty big category. And I was shocked by that because, you know, it's just a conversation. It's literally a conversation. It's not some sort of systematic theology. It's nothing like that. Of course, maybe the fact that it's 99 cents on Kindle probably helps. Um, And it'll, it'll stay 99 cents forever on Kindle. So that helps because you know, who doesn't have a dog, but you know, so it's just that there's, and there's going to be four of them we're going to have summer, autumn and winter, and then we'll have a box set and it'll be in print by 2021. If we're still around COVID hasn't killed us all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. What, uh, what are you, what are you, what do you have a next big book in you? What are you thinking about writing? I've got a couple. There's been something that's been in the works for like three years mm. it is a, it's a, I don't even know how to explain it. It's the book of Genesis. I did it as a creative writing project. So I took the book of Genesis and I wrote a creative, like quasi poetry, quasi, you know, whatever. I had an artist named Zach Parsons work on the art. Mm-hmm. So I might take a couple sentences or I might take a paragraph and he's distilling that into a picture. And so it's like, if, if there's like a children's book made for adults and it's like really bloody and gory, just like the book of Genesis, that's what this is. <laughs> and it's centered on violence. It's called the Genesis of violence. It's going to be super cool, man. It's going to be like a, like a coffee table book mm. that is coming out. I don't know when mm-hmm. apparently art takes a long time. Is it also also published through choir? It will be, yes. And so I'm doing that. And Michelle Collins, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a PhD candidate in something, something with the psychology or psychiatry Mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. We're going to be writing a book. Yeah, we're going to be writing a book together. I've known her for like five years and she's one of my BFFs for life. So yeah, yeah. I heard her on another podcast. Interesting story. She's getting her doctorate, right? yeah and yeah uh, i think she's writing on what the grief of deconstruction the grief process yeah i don't i don't know if she's announced the title but yeah the the thesis or the premise is essentially how the grief cycle and the deconstruction resemble each other Mm. and i think it's really genius and i'm really i haven't read it it's not out and she's not done so Mm. but knowing michelle it's gonna be really good that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, how can people connect with you if they've, you know, want to learn more about what you're doing and read your, you're still blogging, right? So where, where can people connect? Yeah. So I said, I'm not blogging on Pathos, but I am blogging. So allsetfree.com is my site. I would encourage people to go there because you can get all my books there. I have some essays and then, yeah, my blog is, it's not, it's a blog, but it's, it's a weekly thing on Sunday. I'm following the revised common lectionary mm. and I'm commenting on the gospel readings. Mm. So whatever the gospel reading is for that week, I'm adding some thoughts on that. And it's through, it's for my Patreon supporters only. So, but it's only a buck a month. So that's, I think that's pretty good. And then I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Never a dull moment from you on Facebook, by the way. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Especially these days. <laughs> well, there's been, I haven't even done theological stuff. I'm just hearing all this stuff about 5G and coronavirus and all these things. And I'm like, man, everyone, I'm just blown away by the fact that everyone got a PhD in episteme, uh, an epidemiology, sorry, <laughs> in the last seven or 10 or 14 days. Like everyone now has the strongest of opinions on how viruses work, on how pandemics work. Like, it's amazing to me. Yeah, and they're also economists, too. Economists, yes. Everyone's an economist. <laughs> I, I, I saw this thing about, like, some friendship loom or some, some Ponzi scheme. And so I was really fired up about that recently, about how you can turn $100 into $800 and most everyone wins. And I'm just like, oh, man, I I'm sorry. That. I haven't, oh, haven't? That. No. That one fired me up. I was, my wife was laughing at me because I was going on and on about it, like ranting and raving in my house about how could people, <laughs> I woke up the next morning, I was still going, I was like, ah, listen, listen, how did, and she's like, okay, I heard enough. It's stupid. I get it. 
Okay, last last question for you. What do you think is going on, I guess, with this whole pandemic? I think a lot of people have been forced to to rethink and to unthink and to, you know, depending on how you're responding to this situation. I've had a lot of conversations with my daughter and my kids and my wife and and just friends about how there's like a reset on many different levels, good, bad, indifferent, spiritual, uh, psychological, mental. I'd love to get your just maybe five minute opinion on what you've been experiencing and what your thoughts are from a philosophical viewpoint. Well, yeah, I, I know everyone wants things to go back to normal, but sometimes you have to be shaken in order to realize that normal doesn't work. So I, I, I've been thinking about how I hope that all of these different things that human beings do gets modified in a way where we become less competitive and more cooperative. Mm. So like right now, there's where we might be running out of meat. All these meat processing plants might not be able to supply the grocery chains and people are going to be freaking out about that. So I, I think like, well, how can we have a better system that works for everyone? I, I don't have the answer to that. We all have our opinions, but how can we start to do this sort of thing? How can we be more reliant on those around us and allow them to rely on us? Hmm. And I, so I, a big part of this has been like for me is going more local everything should become more local because i think that's where we have a bigger impact yes i think we if i have if i know my neighbors down my street which is like maybe 10 or 15 houses if we all knew each other and and cooperated together i don't think we'd have to worry quite as much about this thing we wouldn't have to worry about toilet paper my god um, like, because we'd be like, Hey, I ran out. Hey, I got you. Hey, I ran out of this. Okay. Give me, give me a couple of toilet papers. I'll give you a, you know, a couple frozen chicken breasts, whatever. What, you know, if we got more like that and that, that could become exponential. Yeah. That could become something where every little bit helps, mm. you know, like we've become, I hate the idea and I get it to some degree. We, we, we feel autonomous. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I am my own. I'm an island, whatever. And that's kind of the American spirit, you know? And to some degree, I, I, it's good, right? Like it's pioneering, it's going, whatever. But it has its downfalls too, because it's almost like the minute we have to rely on somewhere like that's socialism, that's what Europe does, that's this and that. And yeah. like, it's like, okay, come, calm down. You know, yeah. we need to be more cooperative. Yeah, we, it's there's no there's nothing wrong with saying I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps. And mm. if we we're honest, I don't think we could because we rely on things. We rely on people that we can't do. Yes. I don't know how to I, I, I don't know how to do electrician stuff. I rely on someone. I can do basic plumbing, but I rely on someone like we all do that. Now, just go to everything. We all have to realize that it's OK to rely on people. And it's okay to be more neighborly. My God. I think this whole thing has just really made me realize like we need to be way more connected Mm. with the people directly around us. That's good. That's really good. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which is ironic that we're all like social distancing and, but at the same time, we're, we're, you know, we're all in it together. We're all kind of forced to be, you know, in the, in our homes. And what I think is so cool for me is to see all these like events and the NFL draft and these concerts and these benefits. And, you know, you watch the news and everybody is just like being themselves in their house and the world is going on and we're still communicating and we're still connecting and we're still doing beautiful things, but we're using technology. Um, but we're also letting our human sides through and see, you know, these broadcasters haven't done their hair in a while or they haven't you know, put their makeup on or haven't, you know, their grays are going through they can't color their hair and everyone's like yeah we're all doing the same thing it's not a big deal anymore so there's something kind of organic about that and kind of real about it that i think is refreshing to so many people yeah i mean look at john krasinski i obviously have a love affair with john krasinski because i'm an office total office nerd like the whole good news thing or what do you call it is that what he's calling the good news network or yeah it's something like that something like that he had his daughter design something like that's beautiful, man. I, I love that, that, that come, it, it sucks that it takes a tragedy for us to realize the beauty in that. But sometimes that's just how it works. Yeah. And so my, let's roll with it. Let's have a more real and, and real world. Like I know I, we can even turn the no filter thing into its own idol. Sure. Uh, so let's not do that, but let's just be more real with each other. Like yeah. if you got gray hair, it doesn't matter. Yeah, like, exactly. We're all, you know, at the end of the day, when the lights go off and the cameras go off, you know, great athletes are sore. Hollywood actors and actresses do not look like what they are portrayed yeah. on in a magazine. And that's okay. There's beauty in that. There's beauty in scars. There's beauty in imperfection. Yeah, absolutely. Let's roll, let's roll with it, you know? That's awesome, Matt. Well, thank you for taking some time away from your family. I appreciate it. I appreciate what you do. I appreciate your honesty and your transparency and that you're, 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 you're searching and seeking and trying to do what's right, but being honest very openly and publicly. And that gives us a lot of, I think, encouragement and hope, you know, you've always been very honest and transparent. And I appreciate that because, you know, I just want to provide space for people in this podcast to have those kind of conversations because for so many of us, we never could have the, those kind of open, even words of the things that we're thinking, much less conversations. And so I appreciate you doing that. Cool, man. It's my honor. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take it easy. Bye.